10, 9, ignition sequence start, 6. Hello, and welcome to Launchpad, Rocket Fuel's interview series with prominent members of the Rocket Pool community. In today's episode, we have Ken Smith, who, as you all know, is a rocket scientist in the Rocket Pool community. Ken also hosts the weekly, uh, bi-weekly Twitter spaces and calls, where he talks with partner projects, integrating projects, but also with members of the team about everything that's happening in Rocket Pool, kind of like what I do, but a little bit less frequently and with the team involved sometimes. So that's really cool, Ken. Um, of course, everyone knows who you are. You don't really need much of an introduction, but um, welcome. Like we've been meaning to do this for a long time. It's such a pleasure to have you um, have you here. Um, how how are you doing today? Yeah, I'm I'm doing great. And whack. It's just it's a it's a pleasure being here. When you first launched the series, I thought, oh man, it's going to be great to. To get on Launchpad and just spend some time chatting with you a little bit and uh, for it, but uh, it's finally happening. It's amazing how how quick and how busy we all got between when we first talked about it and today. I think the first time we talked about it was a year ago or like something close to that, at least like over definitely over six months ago. So it's really great that you're here. So, you know, you are, of course, a rocket scientist. You're a member of the ODAO. You are on the GMC. You've kind of got your finger in like in all the different pies that are like rocket pool, right? Like um, how, how, how would you say like what, how big a part of your life do you think is rocket pool right now? Uh, it's, it's actually a, 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 a pretty large part. I mean, uh, you know, I do work a full-time day job, but, uh, you know, my, my hobby, my friends, my, uh, intellectual curiosity, my entertainment, it's all in rocket, rocket pool, rocket fuel, uh, Ethereum. Uh, it's kind of a hobby that's turned, turned into a passion, I think. Yeah. But to also turn into like, a full-time second full-time job pretty much for most of us or yes exactly first full-time job so that's really cool so can let, let's like let's find out a little bit about who you are as a person right so um why don't you tell us a little bit about like where your passions and interests in computers and computing and all that started like take us right back to the beginning yeah yeah so i'm probably a little bit older than most of the most of the community this uh this year actually just turned 50 um you know and uh you know to me computers kind of goes way back i mean i'm uh i'm in uh probably elementary school i think it was it's uh the 1980s <laughs> at that time and i think my first introduction to a computer was as uh part of i think it was an elective after school or maybe it was during school i can't remember but it was uh i think it was an old uh commodore and uh you know, these were, uh, it was like learning basic, right? You know, like a, a 10, print something, 20, do something, you know, 30, go back to 10. Uh, and in order to save for it, and I remember the classroom we were in, it, uh, you know, must have had about maybe six of these computers, right? I'm sure it was probably state of the art for the day and so forth. And we had an elementary school, I think, that had them. That was pretty cool. But uh, only one of those computers actually had a way to save your file. <laughs> and it used an old cassette tape that you plugged in with a cassette player and you can hit record and, you know, then save the file to the tape and hopefully it worked correctly in there. But, you know, you didn't always get that computer to be able to save your code. And so it was... Um, 
it was fun. I very much enjoyed it, but it was kind of frustrating because uh, anybody who knows me in Discord knows I'm an incredibly slow typer, like I'm hunting <laughs> and pecking all the time in there. And, uh, you know, oh, uh, I think I still had the same problem back then. And so to spend hours writing a, you know, a simple basic code. And then at the end of the day, when the computer got shut off, that was it. It didn't, it didn't save anywhere for it, but, um, you know, and then later on, I think it was maybe, uh, middle school or so this is probably around 86 or so you know i got my first computer my my mom had uh, gone to i think it was kmart i was trying to recall this i think it was kmart and it was this computer was called an atari 800 xl if i remember correctly and uh you know it um you know i came with a few pieces of software it was one that you actually had a cartridge for some stuff and i think maybe it had a floppy drive i, I couldn't remember this one here but it had a printer um, it wasn't dot matrix. It was what they call the letter quality printer. It was basically like an old typewriter head that would just stamp, you know, with an, with a little ink ribbon in there and you could do some word processing. And, um, but yeah, I think this one must've had a drive cause we were able to save programs. And I remember quite fondly myself and, and my brother, we were, um, you know, would write code on it and play. We didn't have many games, but like, we loved the computer. We loved the word processor and that sort of stuff. And, about the time that I think it's now, maybe I'm in high school, just just kind of starting high school or whatever. We bought the the first what I would call real computer. That the first Atari. I mean, I guess it was a computer, but you know there wasn't much for it. It didn't have much. But my first real computer was this thing. It was a it was an ad on TV, and it was called Head Start Computer, and it was like learn a computer. And I think they had some wrestler in a wrestling ring or whatever. But again, we bought it. My mom spent basically all her all her savings and money on it. We were pretty poor growing up. And anyhow, she got us this 286 Head Start computer. And that one was kind of like the first real opening uh, for it. We didn't have the internet back then, um, at least not yet. Uh, you know, this is like uh, maybe 88 or something like that. I'm sure there was probably, you know, maybe the internet at some universities or ARPANET or something like that. But for us, it was dial-up modems, uh, bulletin boards, right? And mm -hmm. I lived in San Diego back then. I still live in San Diego here, but... Uh, you know, it was there was a, a magazine that would come out in the various computer stores, um, and it was just like a weekly magazine that was free. They would run ads about computers in there, but there was an article in there by um, somebody in the community that would always write. I think it was like Ask Dave or something like that. And it was um, it was all about like computers, and they would explain everything to you. So every week, I would go read it to try to learn everything I could about computers and. You know, you'd hop on the bulletin board, you'd go kind of download whatever software you could get and and play with it. And um, it really kind of started, I think, my love and interest in computers. Now, interesting, I, I, when I went to school, I went to went to college. I, um, you know, we were uh, in our family here. I, we had kind of dropped out of high school early, um, but I was uh, pretty smart. So I ended up uh, going to college a couple of years early and um you know, in college, maybe I should have majored in computers or something. All of my friends, if I look back at all my friends and roommates and so forth, they were all either computer science engineers or, or computer engineering um, degree majors. But um, but I, I thought I wanted to be a chemist. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I was in chemistry and biochemistry and molecular biology um, and did it. But, I, you know, computers were always kind of a, a fun passion for me. My, my brother, I think, got the passion. He actually majored in computers and you know, now works in the industry quite a bit. He too is actually a node operator with uh, Rocket Fold. Oh, nice! It's in the family. Yeah, yeah, it's part of part of the family, I guess. And nice. uh, but um, but yeah, you know, and I, you know, it, uh, it, it's interesting because I think my career was, you know, ended up uh, 
in chemistry, it got me into um, safety. Um, I work for a major public university in California here and have a career for the past 30 years or 30 more years in environmental health and safety. And um, one of the, maybe one of the second loves I came into was uh, uh, a unique profession called health physics. And most people don't know what that is, but uh, it's basically a, a fancy word of saying uh, radiation safety. So I spent most of my professional career working in kind of radiation safety aspects. It's um, been very, very rewarding. It's very, um, very technical. I got to apply a lot of my, uh, uh, my knowledge in, in college. I mean, I don't, I can't say I do a lot of chemistry, but <laughs> certainly a lot of physics, a lot of math uh, comes up in there, which was not my stronger suits in, uh, in college, but it's something I really loved working in um, and enjoyed it. But now as I'm kind of uh nearing a career transition in there, you know, I'll probably expect to, to retire out of this job at, at some point. And uh, certainly my, my passion and love is to, uh, you know, for job 2.0 is to do something in, uh, in blockchain technology. Okay. Well, we'll be talking about that end, at the end. That's such a great story, Ken. Thank you for sharing like your like arc from like basically from elementary school all the way through to now. That was, that was very um, enjoyable to hear that. Um, tell me about like your job, like, what what kind of things do you like about your job? What um what's been what what have been factors that have kept you in this job for thirty years? Because I don't think we hear that much that from people much anymore. You know that they've done the same job for thirty years. How's that been for you? Yeah, you know it's it's been actually a really rewarding experience. I mean, one to to work. You know, I was in I was in college, flat broke, uh, needed needed a job. My first job was actually uh, preparing uh, preparing research samples for electron microscopy. I picked up the skill at a uh, community college I'd gone to, and um, there was a researcher there that needed uh, needed uh, samples prepped and everything. And it was um, it was a good job for me at the time because I could work it on my own hours. So I would go into the lab late at night, uh, and it was kind of a common core lab. So um, you always had to sign up for instrument time or uh, bench time, or you know they had different. Um, microtomes that you would use to slice the samples or sputter coders to prepare them and you know during the days it was always busy but at night no one else would work kind of the longer hours at night so i could go in there i could sign up for as many pieces of uh equipment and instrumentation as i needed and so i kind of created a little um you know a little uh you know assembly line right where i could get one machine going and working and then go over to the next one and do it so i was able to to actually uh, get a lot of work done in a short period of time and, and produce a lot of stuff and kind of thought I'd, I was going to go the research route. Um, and then the professor I was working for at the time uh, ended up, uh, she was a, a little bit um, older in age and her husband, also a faculty member, um, had some medical um, challenges. And so uh, kind of out of the blue or very quickly, she decided it was uh, time to retire and, uh, and get out of the research business. So um uh, there I was needing a job, and I, I found a job in the department, which was uh, most universities have a department that manages a lot of the research safety for the university, whether it be radiation safety or biological safety or various types of safety. So I so I started uh, started working in that profession and uh, kind of fell in love with it. It's been um, it's been very rewarding, I think, because it's like an applied science. You you can apply your knowledge that you you learned in there. I kind of realized that research was interesting, but I I don't know, like you know what you think it what you think it is going through school, and then what it really is in the laboratory could be completely different. Um, and I found I I liked a little bit 
more uh, variety of activities. I liked the interaction of people. Sometimes maybe working late at the lab at night when there was nobody there was a little, um, you know, a little socially isolating and so forth. Um, but it's been kind of a very good ride. It's uh, it's been neat to kind of work in uh, higher education. It's certainly a, a passion, and you know, you're surrounded by a lot of smart people and. Um, uh, it's been good. And then, as as I said, I kind of discovered radiation safety, which is kind of a forgotten profession. I mean, it was very big maybe during uh, the post-war, post-Manhattan project, um, kind of the atomic era, the 50s. Everybody thought Adams for peace. And then it, um, it, it kind of died down as maybe nuclear technology was being uh, supplanted by a lot of other forms of technology. Um, it's making a little bit of a resurgence just because there's not that many people in the profession. Um and so you get a lot of opportunities to do a lot of interesting things in that area. Um, and I always kind of saw myself, okay, when I retire, I'll probably just uh, spend a lot of time consulting in that area or doing, doing aspects of it that, you know, are an interest to me. I have, uh, you know, bookshelves galore of just, <laughs> you know, every textbook on the subject and uh, really much enjoyed it. But, uh, you know, it's amazing how kind of life takes you down different journeys. Now I'm now I'm thinking an entirely different post-retirement career than uh, than continuing on in health physics. Nice. So, how was your um, interest in computers during this time? That you know, after you graduated from college and you got this job, and like it became your passion. Did would, did computers still have a part in your life, or was it like an interest that kind of fell by the wayside? Yeah, it was it was maybe like a hobby, right? I mean, certainly like, I mean, I remember when the internet came along, right? So I was working in a small department on uh, the university then. And, you know, I, I we didn't, you know, when internet was first starting to come in, I was actually, you know, young technician at the time. I was actually one of the guys that was, you know, pulling the ethernet wire through the walls to kind of wire it up. Uh, when we first ran our first server, I was like the little server administrator for the little NT box mail server. And, you know, learned a lot there. In fact, I've, I've got a very fond memory. This is, um, I was at the uh, the Santa Cruz campus, which is just right on the other side of Silicon Valley. And so there, you know, you had a lot of spillover in that time and uh, kind of the early boom of uh, the mid 1990s with, with uh, you know, the dot coms all going. And I remember um, just hearing about the World Wide Web, right? And uh, back then in, in college, it was kind of gopher was the, <laughs> the platform you'd have to go to. And it was a uh, I don't even know how to describe it. It was like a menu-based, text menu-based thing, which would be like you'd log in and you see a menu and maybe two would be, re you know, like library. And then you would wait for that menu to load. And then it would be like three for biology and four. And you'd, you'd find all these resources on the internet, right? But there was not an easy way to navigate them. And I remember, um, you know, uh, it was kind of like a learn at lunch thing. And we ran down to the big lecture hall and somebody from the, you know, central IT service was... Uh, showing that the university has just joined the uh, the World Wide Web and uh, to kind of launch it, they went to Yahoo, which was, was the big, you know, search engine back then. Or I actually don't even know if it was really much of a search engine. It was more of like a, a gopher web platform. And I remember we logged in and it said, you know, welcome UC Santa Cruz and to the World Wide Web. And it was like the, the entire banner on the homepage of Yahoo back then. And, you know, I thought, oh, this is kind of cool. Yeah, that's cool. So, um, how how did you first hear about crypto, and when 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 did that part of your journey start? Yeah, yeah. So, so flash forward, you know, a number number of years, I moved down to Santa Cruz, moved back to San Diego, uh, kind of my my hometown area, and um, you know, I have family, have kids, work work in a job, and for some reason, I'm on a I'm on this uh, 
online forum that, uh, you know, I just spend a little bit of time, right? Forums were kind of a thing. This is uh, maybe around 2013 or so. And this this forum was on uh, personal finance. I think I was trying to figure out some budgeting stuff and um, a couple of things. But anyhow, there was always some interesting uh, post on there that I think I would just spend my, um, you know, kind of time reading on trying to learn a little bit. I never really took much in finance or anything like that. But so anyhow, uh, somebody had posted this question back then and it said something like, what are people doing in their spare time to earn some additional income, right? And, uh, you know, so I started reading the things, kind of thinking, oh, maybe there's something I, you know, I should be doing in here or something like that, kind of looking for something to keep me interested. And uh, one of the one of the people posted, oh, I'm using my computer to mine cryptocurrency. And I was like, well, what is, what is cryptocurrency? I think that was the first time I'd heard of it. And, you know, and so it kind of started this... Um, this kind of rabbit hole to kind of look down, you know, so around here, this is, you know, too late to actually do Bitcoin mining on your computer. Um, but I think after doing a little bit of research and what the person was mining was this other coin, this kind of maybe it was one of the first altcoins to come out. It was something called Litecoin. <laughs> And, you know, the the kind of mantra around there is they thought, oh, Bitcoin would be gold and Litecoin would be silver and um, you could still hash it if you had your your GPU. <laughs> that's there and so i i remember very fondly kind of uh watching some youtube channels youtubers around by then and there was this one that uh, you know is still around today he's got a big uh, bitcoin farm occasionally i see a couple videos from posts but it was by a guy by the name of carter he ran a, a channel called bits be tripping and uh he would just show you how to build and you know if people weren't around for the the, the mining rigs of the time these little home mining rigs were literally you would grab a, a milk cart milk craton or, you know, it's kind of what it looked like to me, but uh, I guess there were really file, you know, file folder crates that you would go to Home Depot and buy. And he would show how you could just build a really cheap computer just with a motherboard memory. And you would just kind of literally hang or sit on top of it, your GPU cards, right? And I don't even know if I own, maybe I own one GPU for gaming. I was not much of a big gamer, yeah. uh, you know. And, uh, you know, but anyhow, the, the ideal of, putting something together, running it in your, in your office or your, your home and, you know, actually kind of seeing these little credits earn, right. These little Litecoin credits in there um, was pretty addicting, right. I loved building computers uh, to do something that was kind of Frankenstein like that. I thought was just the coolest thing. Right. Um, and to be honest, it became quite addicting. Right. Uh, you know, you, you do one, you build it. And then, you know, these, the way that you would do it is you would, um, hang them on these little risers and you would try to stick up to like six cards on your motherboard. Right. And so anyhow, I had figured out, you know, I didn't have much money, but I had figured out that there was this um, uh, store near us called Fry's Electronics. And if you're from California, you probably remember these things. It was like the ultimate nerd computer geek store. Right. And there happened to be one in kind of the next town over real close to me. And, um, you know, I would love going over there on the weekend or whatever. My wife would hate it because I would spend like all day there and <laughs> probably not really buy too much. But I would go around in every aisle and have to check everything out, right? It was like I could spend a whole day in that store. But uh, anyhow, you know, I'd go in there and I'd go try to find like old motherboards that were returned. And I found one that could support this if I rewired. I actually had to kind of like do a little bit of surgery on it and rewire some of the um, the little card slots to get them to work. And uh you know, but anyhow, I found it real cheap and I think it was an old, um, it was an old like Celeron processor that it would use. Right. But 
you go out and you try to find these these video cards and you know this is around maybe the first big video card mining boom and uh you couldn't find these things anywhere like i was kind of a little late to it you know like maybe when i got there there was a few of them but by the time i decided like you know, I think I could make some money if I scale this thing, right? Like, you know, it was like, well, one motherboard and six cards. But what about if I got like, I think I eventually went up to like 15 motherboards. So imagine my house, right? <laughs> okay. I mean, I don't know why, why my wife put up with me on this thing. But like, I started building these things over the course of the years. Like every time I get a little bit of money, I'd run to run to Fry's, try to find one of these cards. And I'd build one of these things and I'd plug it in and you know, I couldn't afford the really good power supplies, but I figured out how to like buy two cheaper power supplies and kind of hook them up together. Right. It was like constantly like battles trying to keep these things on. Right. I don't think they were very stable, but, uh, you know, anyhow, I didn't, uh, didn't quite understand like limitations of, you know, certain, you know, amps on a panel. Right. And I think there's still a plug in the kitchen that like literally has some burn marks that, I don't really use that plug anymore, but uh, one of these days I have to replace it, but I still keep the little burn marks here because I'm sure I was maxing out every circuit, every panel in the house with it and running extension cords when I realized like, you know, you can't put them all in one room because the circuit breaker will blow, right? So then I had extension cords through the hallway into another room and anyhow, I got, I think I, I think I was addicted, right? I got to the end where you couldn't talk in most of the rooms because of the fan noise, Right. Uh, during the winter it was great. You never had to heat the house. <laughs> you really heat it much in San Diego, but uh, uh, you know, during the summer it was like it was hot in the house. And I think yeah. eventually it was uh, <laughs> it was either I need to go or the rigs need to go. <laughs> so, did you make any money from this? Like, was it was it a passion project, or was it like actually did you make any money from it? So that is a good question. It's it's interesting, right? Because you know, around this time, right, it had the first like. I think it was maybe right around then they had the first like bull run. Okay. Yeah. I, I mean, if you look at it now, it's not even a, like a blip. It's like, yeah. what are you talking about? Ken, it looks flat. But I think it went up, you know, the price went up a little bit and I was fortunate in, in, in two senses. So the first sense is not really knowing what I was doing. Uh, I, you know, learned how to join a pool back then. Um, and one of the pools, and I cannot remember the name of it. I'll have to go back, look maybe through my records or something, but uh it was a pool that, uh, you know, very luckily for me, you would mine Litecoin, but at the end of the day or the end of the the pool cycle, maybe it was daily, maybe it was weekly, I can't remember. Uh, they would actually convert, they would sell your Litecoin and then they would pay you out in Bitcoin. <laughs> so, you know, that was good in a sense because Litecoin had these kind of great ups and downs and that sort of stuff. Um but yeah, I made I made some Litecoin that got sold into some Bitcoin. Uh, and I was fortunate enough that to me it was, you know, kind of a hobby, you know, a little bit of an addictive hobby. And so I didn't really need to sell anything. It was just kind of like that's what I was doing for fun. And so I was able to hold on to that through not only that cycle and the, and the other cycles. And that, that proved to be very, very um, fortuitous. Yeah. Um, but, you know, in hindsight, I probably should have just taken what i spent on the computers and the rigs cool. <laughs> and, just, and just bought the cryptocurrency right yeah but then you wouldn't have learned you wouldn't have like had a passion you wouldn't have learned how some of this stuff works right i certainly learned a lot more about computers than i ever did doing that nice that's amazing so how did you uh, get into ethereum then like what happened what happened um to transition from being like a litecoin mining accumulating bitcoin to hearing about ethereum like when did you hear about ethereum yeah, yeah. So 
so it's you know the you know the cycle had gone through and it's done for, and it was kind of like in a down cycle and i was realizing that you know what i was paying in electricity was you know pretty high i mean i don't live in the cheapest electricity rate these are probably not the most economical cards because i couldn't buy the really good cards i was always buying kind of these like r9 270s and you know and just trying to figure out what i could what i could do to kind of you know keep it keep it going and i realized okay the hash rate was just going through the rough at the time and i think i had sat down with the spreadsheet and just figured out okay this is you know this is not going to work um I had one last little foray in it where, you know, the, we're just starting to come out with ASIC miners for Litecoin. <laughs> and there was already some in Bitcoin, but I kind of felt like Bitcoin, I was, um, I was late to the game. I mean, I wish I could go back and tell myself, you're not late, you're very early, <laughs> but I yeah. felt like I was late. Right. I thought like, okay, so let me, let me try to chase the, the next, the next best thing. Uh, so I sold, I sold all my, um, GPUs, right? You did it on eBay. Just, I think it was over Christmas. I just put them all up there and a couple of days over Christmas, uh, you know, we're boxing up everything and, you know, just kind of selling it and, you know, pennies on the dollar or whatever, just trying to get out of it. But I kept the ASIC miner for a while and, you know, but I was always interested in Bitcoin or whatever. And back then there wasn't actually a lot of content, you know, like now it's like, you can find everything the day it happens, right? Like, not only your show for Rocket Pool, but like, you know, you you can hear from, you know, Cezano, you can hear from the Bankless folks, you know, you can be on Twitter or X and, you know, you, you just have all this information right there. And for me back then, it, it there wasn't too much, but there were some podcasts. And one of the podcasts I was listening to was one called Episode Bitcoin. And I was surprised they're actually still still around. It looks like they've got some good content. To, and I was just trying to get some dates straight in my head for this thing. And but anyhow, I remember the episode. I'm I'm driving home, so um, you know I'm working now out of the Bay Area, living out of uh, San Diego, but working out of the Bay Area. I used to go up there. I used to fly up there early week, and uh, you know live out of a reasonably priced motel for part of the week, and um, uh, you know fly fly back home for it. And so I'd have some time coming back from the office. You know, it'd be about maybe a thirty minute, forty minute commute that time of day, and uh, you know, so I'd put on my podcast. Uh, thing and listen for it. And I was listening to episode Bitcoin and it was, I think their first episode they did with this guy, Vitalik Buterin, right? And I, I remember this very, very well because, um, you know, I'm listening to it. They're talking about his project. I think they already had the auction. I think maybe it was just launching around that time or it had launched, but anyhow, uh, if you've ever listened to Vitalik, right, he's just so impressive and smart. And I remember this very, very well. I got, I got to the uh, motel parking lot and I'm sitting in there and, you know, normally I would just shut it off and listen to the thing. But this one I was so enthralled with, right? I wanted to hear what what the next thing this guy was going to say. Um, and I just remember very vividly uh, sitting in the car with kind of the engine running and the, the podcast still playing and let the whole episode play all the way, all the way through. I'm sure people are like, why is this guy just sitting in the car? But, uh, <laughs> you know, but anyhow, after that, I thought, oh, I got to go check this out, right? Um you know, and I couldn't, you know, my ASIC miner there was like a Litecoin, um, ha you know, algorithm only. It couldn't do uh, Ethereum. And I think even then it had to be GPU mined only for mm -hmm. a couple of reasons. And my my GPUs were never at the time, you know, good enough to, to mine. And if I even if I even had some around then. But, um, you know, after that, I said, oh, I need to go get some. <laughs> and, uh, you know, the only way I could figure that out is to, you know, go to an exchange and, you know, uh, swap out some of the Litecoin or Bitcoin that I had at the time and, and get Ethereum. And that's, 
kind of my first introduction into into Ethereum. Those early days, the ratio was amazing. <laughs> Looking back on yeah. it, so so yeah, you, you got a you got a couple of nice moves there, Ken. Like you got in in Bitcoin fairly early, and then you swapped up for ETH fairly early. So good job, nice trades. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. If I could go back, I would do it like hundred x <laughs> over, right? But you know, you, you didn't know, and it was just sort of like, you know, to me, it was kind of like a hobby. Like I wasn't going to spend mm-hmm. more than like what other people would have spent on games or a concert or something yeah. like that. Right. You know? Yeah. And uh, so I was excited about, you know, kind of the roadmap that he laid or the vision for he laid. And of course, you know, it took quite a while for that to go, you know, it wasn't until, you know, maybe the next cycle. So, you know, after this, I sold my ASIC, you know, that, that thing wasn't too bad. I had that hooked up in one room and, you know, it's power consumption was much less and the fans were, much you know silenter and i think for another year i let that thing run and then eventually decided yeah you know hash rates going up again what what do i do and you know i can still get a a little bit forward beggar asics were coming on the market and i kind of realized well this thing's going to depreciate as much as i'm earning anything on it and you know another another down cycle had happened right so you know, I I remember very fondly, you know, the first one you're thinking, oh, I'm going to get a little rich doing this thing. And then it totally drops out. And I remember the second cycle where I was like, man, I'm glad I held. Look, I can, you know, for me, it was going to be, hey, I can earn some money to, you know, help pay my mortgage. Right. That was like the thing I was working towards. Right. And, you know, and then uh, I thought, oh, maybe do I do it or do I not do it? And, you know, didn't do it. And then the market crashed again. Right. And then, you know, I think around this time, you're kind of like, oh, man, I could have like made a big dent in the in the mortgage payment. What did what did I do? I totally screwed that one up. Right. Yeah. Um, uh, for it. But, uh, you know, and then I think whenever Crypto Kitties came maybe it's 2017 now or whatever. Yeah. You know, there was a huge bull run going on there. Right. Uh, and I thought, OK, let me let me go figure out this Crypto Kitties thing. Right. It's like finally there's a a DeFi use or something like that. It's this program used, you know, it's kind of everything Vitalik was talking about, but you know, uh, maybe I just didn't get it. Like, I'm kind of like, wait, why, why are people buying these cat pictures and like playing a game and, you know, trying to breed the cats. And so anyhow, I, I, I don't know. I was, I don't want to say I was turned off, but I was kind of like, ah, I don't get it. Right. You know, <laughs> you know, kind of like Larry David in the commercial. Eh, I don't think so. Right. Like, like what's the, uh, what's the point for it but um you know and then of course then the market crashed after that were you um on any like crypto communities i know you said that you know you listen to podcasts and stuff but were you talking to people about crypto where where were those conversations happening yeah you know i i I think i kind of missed that i mean obviously they they must have been happening right um and i just don't think i really uh figured out how to do it i mean like i would lurk a lot on reddit right um, you know, you'd kind of Google stuff on there, but I don't think I was very, I mean, I certainly didn't post about it. Right. And I didn't know any close friends or like in real life people. I mean, there's a few people I ran into. We'd talk a little bit, but like nobody that I could ask questions about, Hey, what do you think about this? Or what's this and that sort of stuff. So I do feel like I, you know, I missed a lot that was going on obviously in the community in those, in those days, you know, certainly now when I've read a lot of the books on Ethereum and the growth and, you know, there was tremendous activities going on in there and I just, it was oblivious to me. I kind of, I kind of missed on that. I think it was, you know, busy in real life. And, you know, to me, my experience had just been kind of the mining side of it. And I didn't really understand, you know, the whole security aspect of mining and what value you were doing. I just kind of saw it as a way to, 
you know, make a little money or whatever, or, or an excuse to buy computers and, <laughs> and be able to say, well, it's, uh, it's, it's part of the business. Don't worry about it. You know? I like that. So uh, what happened in, with the bull market? I said after the bull market 2018, you know, we had a brutal bear for a couple of years into 2019, early 2020 with COVID, like everything kind of crashed. Like what was that period like for you? Yeah. So, so my job at the time, uh, you know, so now I, I work, uh, in our, in our central university's office. And I actually had to play a pretty significant role in the early days in the, in uh, the COVID work. Right. Um, you know, because part of my profession, we were actually kind of watching some of the early onset of the virus in early January. Right. So it was kind of a, it was a stressful time and it was a challenging time because you were trying to convince, you know, senior leaders of the emergence of this virus, right. That was, you know, something just theoretical in there. And I I remember doing some work. I was working incredibly long hours at the time, doing some work on like, you know, our universities, uh, you know, 150 years old and actually looking up the, you know, the actually what happened in the archives of the university and the, uh, the influenza pandemic of uh, 1912. Right. And, uh, you know, and so it was, um, you know, finding some old stuff about what the university did and preparing plans and, you know, you're, you're pitching it to some very prestigious leaders and they're kind of looking like you like, ah, I think this guy's lost it or whatever. Right. Uh, you know, but then, you know, as everybody kind of knows it, it, it started to play out. Uh, some of the first cases were, were found here in, uh, in California and uh, some of our hospitals that our university operates. And so it was kind of, uh, kind of very intense for that period of time. And so, um, you know, whatever else was happening in the world around that time, I wasn't paying attention to it. I kind of had to live and breathe COVID almost full time. And it wasn't until I think maybe the summer of 2020, maybe six months into the pandemic, something like that. And anyhow, I think I just kind of needed a break and I'm kind of just surfing the web, trying to decompress a little bit. And I had seen uh, Vitalik's name come up and it was talking about the continued uh, switch to proof of uh uh, you know, proof of stake. And I, you know, I kind of remember that, that that was one of the, one of the visions that he was kind of laying out. And I thought, oh, really? They're about ready to do that. And anyhow, I, I started thinking, oh, this could be kind of like mining yet again. <laughs> you know, and see, you know, this could be kind of fun. I'll actually be doing something. Maybe I'll figure it out a little bit more. And, you know, by this time now, there's, you know, tremendous resources for the community, right? This was DeFi summer of 2020 and just, kind of ended or was still going. And I'm, you know, I'm trying to just drink from a fire hose, trying to understand what all this stuff is people are talking about. And I think I was kind of in shock a little bit about how much the protocol had grown when I wasn't paying attention. Right. And all these things that I, you know, from crypto kitties where I was like, okay, I don't quite get it. To, wow. Can you believe all of this is here? And like, I, you know, I wasn't paying attention, you know, like, what was I, what was I doing? Um, and so then it was, you know, kind of that summer, it was about ready to launch. The people were signing up in the contract and I decided, okay, I want to, I want to stake. Right. And I was trying to decide how I was going to stake. Right. Was I going to solo stake or was I going to find, uh, you know, at that time I was thinking, oh, do I use Coinbase or Kraken or, uh, uh, you know, I think I was also looking at all, all nodes. Do I just pay them to run the node and for it? But I kind of decided, no, I actually enjoyed hands-on hardware. I want I want to figure this out. Whatever whatever it takes, it can't be harder than than the mining aspect. Mm. Let, let me go learn it. So then you started learning it, and then what happened? 
Yeah. So then, uh, you know, I came across the East Acre community. I think that was like all roads were kind of taking me there. And uh, uh, either I was in the Discord. I don't know if I posted in the Discord yet or or there. Somebody else asked the same question and they were like, well, you know, what would you do? And I think a lot of people had commented, well, either we would solo stake and, and you know, sign up and, and do it. And they had the guides. They had like a coin cashew and I forget mm-hmm. who the other person was. Summary uh, so, up. Yeah, some resets uh, guide in there. And I actually went through, went through them. You know, I'd, uh, you know, old school, I'd had to print out the guide and put in a little three ring binder and was kind of learning, you know, my Linux skills were a little old, right? And, uh, you know, and I'm kind of going through it and, you know, trying it on the test nets and so forth. And, um, you know, somebody else had mentioned, no, oh, you should check out Rocket Pool. And so I went over to Rocket Pool and, uh, you know, my first impressions were I actually looked it up here. You know, I joined the Discord. Now it's a January of 21, right? So the, the beacon chain had launched. I didn't want to, I, I didn't feel like I knew enough to get in the pre-launch, right? You know, I, but I did watch the launch and, you know, kind of learn through that. And then, um, uh, you know, and so then uh, joined the joined the Rocket Pole Discord. And there were two things that kind of impressed me very much in there that I think kind of swayed my decision to to choose rocket pull over solo staking, but I actually had this big pro and con list on a piece of paper that I was trying to sort it out. But the, the two things, if I recall correctly, that really influenced me is one, even back then the documentation was so much better, right? I kind of felt like, oh, okay. Uh, you know, these other guides were good, but like, it's so much easier in rocket pull from that documentation, right? I kind of feel like I can follow this. And then second, the community was just really good. I think, you know, I, I joined on the 23rd. I looked it up just, just in preparation of this interview. And four days later, my first post was asking a question like, hey, I'm either going to solo node or I'm going to join Rocket Pool. Help me. I've got some questions. Help me. And I think I was just really blown away. I think it was Joe that might have been with some of the first response to it, right? That was just like, oh, here's the pros and cons and here's here's this and that and so forth. And, um, you know, and so... I just started ingesting the information and I didn't really know how to do Discord. I think I was asking all the technical questions and trading and shit posting and general or whatever. It was I was kind of confused on the channels and everything. But uh um but anyhow, I think within maybe a week or whatever of in there, I had pretty much decided, okay, I, I know there's a whole bunch of people that can help me. They're in the same boat. Uh and it's gonna be rocket pull and you know, they were still kind of working their way through the protocol and the contracts, but I was confident they were going to launch at some point. And it was like, okay, I'm, I'm joining that community and we'll figure it out together here. So you did figure out together because really quickly you were made into a rocket scientist, which is, um, you know, a status that's given to community members who really help with like education or some kind of research or really give back above and beyond. Right. So, how did you become a rocket scientist in in those days? Yeah, yeah. So I have to I have to go back and look in there. I think, uh, uh, you know, certainly there were there were others in there that I think had a much better comprehension of it. Um, if I remember correctly, it was a uh, freeborn, right? Izzy from from Lido. Mm-hmm. He was hanging yeah. out a lot in, in Rocket Pool and uh, Joe and you know Joe was kind of expressing interest. They were just you know posting the jobs. I think around that that time period somewhere in there. And um, uh, Zero was there. Buddha was there and you know, I, I understood enough of the concepts. I mean, maybe on the, on the actual technical side in terms of the computer commands and codes in Linux, right. I mean, I would not consider myself a really strong Linux um, user. I'm getting better and better obviously over the years, but uh, you know, I, I understood the grasp of 
how staking occurred and what was actually kind of happening and explain it. And Rocket Pool at that time was under just tremendous growth, like the Discord just kept growing and growing. And so there was constantly every day, I mean, maybe it's still the case to, even today, right? But like new people would come in all the time and ask these questions and, you know, and so, you know, remember this is still a pandemic. We're not doing any anything else, right? And, you know, the job is starting to, um, uh, you know, kind of have a little bit of a rhythm to it. It's no longer the crisis of COVID. It's more, you know, managing under COVID. And, um, you know, so I would just spend a lot of time in uh, support, just helping everybody. And to me, I it was a benefit both ways. I felt, A, I was giving back to the community that kind of gave to me. But two, it was also I'd come across something new. And I was like, hmm, I don't know. I haven't seen that here before. Let's uh, let's try to work through this one together and, and see where it is. And I think they were, you know, recognizing that there were a number of folks that uh, were contributing that way. And so they they created them. Back then it was called educators, I think. And uh, the rocket scientist motif didn't really come along until I think Joe had suggested it and said, hey, we should keep a little theme going here and so forth. So I think I first joined, it was as an educator. And, nice. uh, you know, and so that was that was kind of neat. I got to learn, learn quite a bit there. Um, and then... Uh, I, I think it also helped out too. They were in uh, test net mode, and I can't remember which which test net this was. Right, there were a couple of them, but uh, anyhow, I had, I was trying to figure it out. I'm always kind of curious, and I I didn't quite understand how the inflation worked in the RPL token. And so one of the things I was trying to help Dave with, Dave was much more directly active on the on the coding. Dave and Jake were kind of taking taking a lot of the the lead in there, and so I said, hey, let me. Dave, why don't you let me try to just track the inflation on this test net? I think it was every three days and I'll create a little spreadsheet and we'll start tracking this thing. And so anyhow, I started doing that. And one of the things I noticed is when I was trying to like recreate the, the inflation just manually in the spreadsheet, I could never get the numbers quite right. <laughs> and so anyhow, that kind of pointed out a little flaw in the inflation code that I think I picked up and then one of the auditors had picked up as well too. At least the auditor knew how to explain what was causing it. I just I just knew something wasn't adding up, but I couldn't quite fig figure it out. Um, and I think that kind of helped a little bit too when they were like, okay, Ken's, you know, contributing his second time to kind of understand this at a deeper, deeper level in there. So um you came into the Rocket Pool Discord with some ETH. What convinced you to buy RPL to get ready for staking? Yeah. So, you know, once I decided that, okay, um, it was going to be rocket pool, right. That's what I was going to do. And then I was like, okay, what am I going to do with my ETH? And, you know, there was, there was still a lot of the DeFi going on, right. Uh, it was actually a great time to, to be in trading. I think as we were in the betas, uh, you know, everybody was in there. I remember there was like a DGen discord server we were going in and all these different protocols were kind of in their heyday. Some of them that didn't make a lot of sense and some that did. And, you know, I would go there to just kind of learn about it. I was still kind of like maybe crypto kitties, like, I don't get it. Like, what is this pickle jar? What am I doing with the pickle jar? And why are all these DeFi things named after food? And, you know, <laughs> it was, uh, I was like, wait, this, you know, is this there? And I, anyhow, I kind of just decided, nah, you know what I'm going to do with my ETH is I'm going to, I'm going to stake it because I, I could get the node validation. I understand what proof of work versus proof of stake is. And, you know, and, and it just, it, to me, it just made more sense. And, I th I thought it was perhaps a little more conservative, right, than some of these longer shot shot things. And so, um, you know, I just kind of done my math and said, okay, let's, uh, you know, I'm going to need this amount of RPL and I'll figure out how to use one of these, you know, exchanges. This is going to be kind of my first DeFi interaction and do it. And 
so anyhow, on the in the thing, I think Joe was pointing out there was this well, uh, I think it was zero XCC or whatever, one of the yeah. f- first wells that was uh, you know, had this buy that I think just routinely or sell, it was a, like sell. every couple of days, it was just Don't constantly. Yeah. yeah. And so the price was going down. And so this was kind of interesting for me to watch and, you know, just kind of look at it and, and see what's there. And I think, you know, everybody was saying, yeah, as soon as he sells that last little bit, that's when we all need to hop in here and, 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 and kind of buy it. And to me, it was just more of just an allocation of, Hey, let's do it to kind of, you know, get the correct number of nodes that I need. Right. You know, so I was trying to do the math and figure out how much RPL I needed just to, run the nodes that I wanted to run yeah. for the validators. Great. So then you became a rocket scientist. How was it in that summer? Like, you know, ETH and Bitcoin crypto as a whole was in a huge bull run, working towards getting mainnet going. Can you um, tell us a little bit about what, like, the rocket pool community was like at that time? Like, what was trading like? What was being in the thick of it? Like, what? how how was that for you? Yeah, yeah. It was, it, it was, it was definitely a bull run, right? I mean, there was... Uh, you know, every day, like I was looking forward to, you know, to me in the, in the evenings and the, and the, uh, the late after, you know, after work, basically all the way through the middle of the night was to get into trading. Not only, I think for just the excitement, there was a lot of excitement, but always like every day something was happening. Right. Like, and so somebody would go, Hey, did you hear about this or what's that? And I don't think I was quite on Twitter then. So, the, you know, there was a lot of folks that would hear something on Twitter and then come over and share it and, you know, so it was always an adventure each night. I mean, it. Um, you know, now I think I'm maybe bit off a little more than I could choose, so I don't have as much time uh, kind of keeping up with trading and everything in there. But it was certainly a lot of fun, and I think a lot of a lot of the folks that I consider my friends, I I met through trading, right? Uh, uh, in there, right? We were all kind of learning and exploring, and we were certainly uh, riding the euphora, you know, all the way to probably you know the you know, the Terra Luna and maybe the time before when the price started dropping and, you know, and then kind of rode that all the way down. But certainly there was a lot of excitement. There was a lot of excitement built up towards uh, towards launch, you know. Were you not tempted to sell at any point during that period? No. Uh, I mean, uh, you know, besides like the tax obligations and so forth, right? Uh, it wasn't, um, you know, because this has still just been my play money, if you will, right? Back from from back then for it. Um, you know, so nothing, nothing yet. Um, you know, and I'll probably wait for the next cycle to to go before doing something. Nice. Okay. So let's get back to uh, launch. Min launch happened, of course. You know, it was delayed first before before we got the actual launch. Um, how was the feeling in Discord when you know we'd had so many betas before that and then min that got delayed? How how was yeah. that? That that was that was a little bit of a sucker punch there. It uh, you know, I remember like literally we had a call and I got to kind of host part of that call with the team uh, ahead of time. And it was basically mission is a go, or you know, green lights across the board, we're gonna do it. And then uh, you know, then there was a little bit of radio silence for about half a day or something like that, and I didn't really think much of it. And then there was the post, I think it was by Dave, if I'm recalling correctly, and it was basically, hey, it's you know, a serious bug has been found and we're gonna have to, you know, pause the the launch of this thing. And at first I kind of thought, wait, is he joking? Like, like what's up in there for it? Um, but uh, 
you know, but then I think once it was kind of revealed, like, hey, this is this is what it is. And not only affected us, it affected Lido and so forth. And, you know, and I, you know, I think it was I think it was very glad. I mean, it could have been, you know, obviously a very bad outcome for Rocket Bull if it had launched. I forget. Uh, uh, it was an individual from another competing staking firm. And I, I can't mm-hmm. remember which one it, it is here. Um, but yes, I, I do remember I kind of uh, tracked tracked down the protocol and went over there and actually said kind of thank you uh, to it. In fact, no one in that protocol had realized uh, what that person had done. I think it was one of the, the founders or programmers on there. Yeah. And, uh, you know, but basically posted just a nice say thank you for for, you know, claiming the bounty and preventing this uh, this accident from happening here. And, uh, you know, and then it's wise. Yeah, I, th- I think it was. I think Stakewise. it was. Yeah, I think it was from Stakewise. I think so, but maybe I'm mistaken about that. But yeah, yeah. so sorry, carry on. Yeah. I want to say uh, Sergey or somebody um, mm. uh, that was there. And so anyhow, it was, um, you know, and, and so then it was, you know, it was good to kind of hear that, okay, they, there was a fix for it and they had a way for it, but it would take some time, um, you know. And then so I think, you know, real quickly, it was kind of back on track and building up for the launch. And, uh, you know, launch day was... Uh, was a little interesting. I remember that there was a little bit of a euphoria to kind of be the first, right? And uh, it was a little little nerve wracking because I thought, oh, okay, okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna do this, right? Why not? Let's let's try to be in the competition for first. And you know, when it launched, you'll have to remind me of the dates, but like gas gas prices around then were like astronomical to compare to what we're paying now, right? You know why uh, it, even... it spiked on launch night, right? It's because there was the airdrop for the ENS. Airdrop it, it, happened at the same time, yeah. I think. Yes, exactly. And it, it was like, through, yeah, you know, it was like NFTs, airdrop, right? And everything's in there. And then I remember, you know, they had done a live stream, right? And everybody's kind of watching it. And, you know, a couple of people were like, oh, let's all try to be the first. And everybody wanted to know how to like front run it, right? Yeah. And I don't think I really knew enough to like really how to get ahead of it. But like some people were like, okay, we'll, we'll just, we'll, we'll try a couple of things. Right. And I think everybody kind of resided around, we'll just write a script that will just keep repeating and looping over again, trying to do it versus trying to figure out the ether scan contracts and, and put something through. But, uh, you know, everybody uh, kept getting timed out because in the smart node stack, there was actually like a little uh, safety valve that it, if the total price of gas was going to be greater than I think an ether or something, or maybe it was more than that, uh, it would just, it, rever- it wouldn't transact. It would just yeah. say, Hey, you're probably doing something wrong. You don't want to spend that much on, on gas. And um, uh, I think it was Colfax in the community that after some period of time, uh, I remember Joe was a little nervous as I think he was trying to figure out why it wasn't working. <laughs> right. And he was on camera and I remember I thought, Oh man, I, you know, he's earning his pay today to be in front of camera trying to <laughs> troubleshoot something like this. Is it an error in the code or what it is? And finally, I think once Colfaxes went through, and this is after, I want to say 20 minutes or something. Somebody could probably find that video up on YouTube. Then finally it went through and, you know, I think Joe was had a sigh of relief. And, um, you know, I was able to get, I think, uh, I forget how many we were. When Rockpool launched, it launched these things we called stages. And I think in the first stage, there might have only been 10 or 20 <laughs> Yeah, 10. 10. Yeah, yeah, I did. I was able to get one of the the last in that one. Nice. Paid way too much <laughs> in gas fees for it, right? If you were if you were smarter, you would have just waited for the frenzy to settle down and you would have been in the same boat. Yeah, and then by phase two, you know, went up to I think like 50 or 100 or something. And then I think yeah. it was phase four when it 
four like three weeks later is when it all opened up for everyone and that's when yeah. a lot of people joined so then of course you know rocket pool starts and um one of the things that i remember about you can first the because i joined the community just before the failed mainnet launch and then i was kind of like slowly like reading but not really contributing anything and i think it was around that time when i was kind of i had made the decision that i wanted to start staking and i was going to do with rocket pool um and that's kind of like when i started seeing your name around but the real i started to get a real impression of who you were when we started like reading some of your research that you were doing like putting out papers about different things so how how was that process like what made you start doing research in rocket pool yeah you know i think it's it's maybe part of a part of everyone's journey right i mean at some point you you consume stuff and then um there were a couple of things. I mean, like right before I did my research thing, one of the things there were maybe two things. Like, I always enjoyed the hardware side, right? Maybe that's why I enjoyed the mining side or whatever. And there were there were two things I kind of worked on. I mean, one Joe was big into the Raspberry Pi, and uh, mm -hmm. you know we had kind of a little bit of going competition where he would, you know, he'd post at the end of the day, oh, I got it down to five watts or whatever like that, and you know, I I fell in love with the little uh, Intel nooks, right. That I was introduced, introduced to as part of the staking thing and thought, Oh, these are kind of fun little, you know, single board computers that, uh, you know, that's an Intel product that I, you know, I know windows, I know Intel and the x86 architecture. So I'm like, okay, Joe, I'll give you a, a run for it. So there were kind of two things I did. One is, uh, you know, that time I was like, I bet you I could find a way to put this in a fanless case and kind of like, like, you know, do something there. So I figured out how to do the, uh, you know, the Akaska cases, which I had seen in like some article about audiophiles that don't like the sound of fans. And, you know, and to me, my, my node was sitting next to me and I was like, you're right. I don't like the, the sound of fans too. And then, um, you know, then one of the kind of, I don't know, flaws or critiques of rocket pull was that you, you have your node as this hot wallet, right. And there's some risks there. And, um, you know, I was like, no, there's got to be a way to solve this with some hardware. And I had written up a guide to do something called the uh, the uh, um, Aegeus key, this this the smart key, a secure key by a by Aegeus. And if you look at my GitHub, you'll you'll see it. But basically, I'd figured out that you know the the government uses these little USB drives that have a pin on it, a little keypad pin. And the same thing, if you enter your pin incorrect, it's like a little ledger device. But you can put the the hot wallet on there. It doesn't completely like if somebody hacks the the live server, they could still gain access to the file. But if somebody stole your home node, you know, and it unplugs, they, you know, they don't get anything. They might as well steal your ledger, right? It's like useless mm -hmm. to them. So I had, I had written both of those. And I remember in the community, I think we were looking at um, uh, this time, I think it was on, um, maybe it was MEV or the smoothing pool. I forget which one I had, I had done first here. And um one of the interesting things I had thought is like in my kind of health physics background, I'd learned a little bit about this technique called Monte Carlo simulation, which was they use a lot in um, kind of radiation um, dose measurements where you have all these factors that seem almost in, insurmountable, like, you know, what radiations, which direction the particles are going, what's the shielding, what's the probability of it. And, you know, they can use a, like a mathematical approach that says, well, you can just play this game of, of kind of Monte Carlo simulations where you just, you know, come up with a probability throughout this thing and, you know, create a fictitious photon and, you know, pick a direction and pick a, pick a material and see if it probability 
probabilistically interacts and records the result and do it again. And you do it a couple million times or whatever, and you get enough data and turns out that that simulated um, response actually kind of matches pretty well uh, reality, right? You can, you can simulate it with enough throws of the dice. And uh, I thought, oh, you know, I bet you we could do that with uh, some of the rocket pull stuff, right? I mean, it would transition pretty well. We could take some of the back history to figure out these prob probabilities, and then we can create uh, just a little simple Python model. And I knew enough about Python to like really <laughs> crudely code it. I am not a coder. I mean, most of my programming, I just took in a science class. and But I always learned that the way I kind of learned something is to actually have a need to do something and then I'll figure out how to make it do what I want it to do. So I'm sure when uh, the first one of the first pieces to look at it was Val and I'm sure he probably rolled over and had to edit a lot of the code and clean it up. But, uh, you know, anyhow, I got it to kind of work and produce some charts and, uh, you know, I, you know, confirmed some of it by just testing it on some other stuff and said, Hey, this is a pretty good model. Let me, let me write this up. Cause I think it's going to be helpful to the, the community. I think it's going to be helpful to the team. And I didn't really kind of realize it until much later here that that's kind of how computer science and Ethereum works, right? You reach some point, you figure out like, oh, we could probably solve it by doing this. Let me write up this paper and share it with the community. Um, and, you know, those were kind of my my first two maybe contributions for it. I think they were very well received. And, you know, one of them I got to go present. It was on the smoothing pool to actually model, model that, right? I, yeah, I think my first one was on... Uh, on MEV risks that, that we did the modeling on kind of MEV and so forth. And then the second one was on the smoothing pool, right? Joe had already kind of, you know, collected the ideals and, you know, we were going down that route and, you know, the real question is, well, okay. So if you build it, does it, does it make sense to be in the smoothing pool or not? Like, I mean, just because we can build it, you know, should we build it and does it actually make sense? And turns out both of those projects were, you know, kind of built upon each other. And so it just made made a lot of sense. And that was a fun one because I got a small grant from uh, NodeSet um, back in the day when they were just forming to actually um, present that paper at uh, at DevCon in Bogota. Bogota, uh, yeah. Five. And that was, that was really neat to be able to not only share it back to the Rockable community, but to share it with the, the rest of the Ethereum group. And there were... The room was packed and there were many, many protocols that were there that were interested. In fact, I just seen somewhere recently that they've got one of the first solo, uh, no, if you're a solo node, there's a smoothing pool for them. I forget who put it together, but it was uh, came out last week or so. It's really exciting. So first of all, I think you're massively understating the impact of the work that you did because those couple of papers like really laid the groundwork, of course, for the smoothing pool. That was already an idea, but it really gave it a lot of momentum. And the MEV post that you made was one of the foundational documents that let us get LEB8s, right? Like that. Yeah. So that was a huge revolution in like rocket pools like trajectory like it was a huge step up so you can't you can't just like yeah just put some research together like it was monumental ken like that was a really big deal so like thank you for that like how yeah. how did that go from putting that paper together to getting leb8s like what were some of the conversations that were happening yeah so it was it was it was interesting because i think two things i mean one when rocket pool first kind of formed its tokenomics or its model its white paper was that there would be this one for one back Backing, right, a node operator would come with one ETH collateral for every one ETH that it was borrowing, and you know was there. And then I think, um, you know, maybe maybe in hindsight it was obvious or whatever. But hey, the number of people that know how to 
operator node or are willing to learn how to operate a node and then have the financial resources of that 16 ETH was very limited, right? And so uh, in order for Rocketpool to continue its growth, right, it needed to find a, a different model. And so there was a lot of conversation going on at the time about, okay, well, so what what are these risks, right? And, you know, I was consuming more and more information about how Ethereum works, right? And trying to trying to understand this. And, you know, Discord, you could actually go down and and track down some people that would post something, right? And you can ask them a question, hey, on that on that post or that Medium article or that blog entry you put, like, what, what did you mean when you said this? And I, I thought that was absolutely fascinating to the community to be able to kind of ask these people, you know, track them down and ask these people. And everybody was so willing to help. I mean, that's the the culture of Ethereum, right? Um, and so, you know, the, you know, we were focused a lot in the time about the protocol um, penalties, right? You know, the slashings, the inactivity leaks and that sort of stuff. And, um, there was an article um, that came out by a group called Pintel. Um, they got hired by Lido to do some work and, um, you know, and they, they started to kind of show that, well, you can, you can start to quantify these things, right? There's, there's data and there's, um, there's probabilities, right? And we know the conditions for each one of these things. And um, I had seen some of their work and I was like, oh, this kind of reminds me of sort of what I do in my profession, which is these risk assessments, right? Like, there's something they actually call in the industry called a micro mord. Like, what's your probability of dying in these high risk, um, you know, safety events, right? And uh, uh, you know, I'm like, you know, what I could probably use something like that. And you know, we thought, okay, it's going to be these these protocol conditions that are going to be the big risk. And you know, it turns out that when you actually kind of figure out the probabilities and then the impact to them, um, you know, short of a very, uh, you know, a, a you know, a, a large inactivity leak uh, in which, you know, multiple clients go down, right? It's, you know, none of these impacts are all that devastational, the rocket pool, because it's so diversified. Um, even if you have a, you know, a penalty offline, there's not going to be a corollary event, right? And so the the cost of the protocol is just at most a couple ETH, right? You know, it's like really nothing. And so it sort of seemed like, okay, this is not our problem, right? But I was like, so what is our problem? Um, and one of the things I think, you know, some in the community were kind of thinking it would be this way. And um, But anyhow, once we started looking, we had time. This was um, uh, the the post change in, in, uh, in kind of MevBots and uh, MevBoost. And we had data. It was basically, hey, there's these things called lottery blocks, right? And that even though they're rare, you can actually um, you can actually come up with a valid strategy to steal these lottery blocks, right? And if you do, even though they're very rare, they're so rich, they're so valuable that if you steal them, you actually take a significant amount of returns away from the protocol, right? So I think that really helped kind of shape the community about okay, it's this it's this risk of uh, lottery block theft, right? That's what we that's what we need to worry about. It's either, you know, there's two strategies. You can either wait till you win the lottery and then steal it, or you play what I call the long con in my paper, which is you create this thing at a lower cost collateral node and immediately you start stealing this lottery block. You steal all MEV, right? And um, that way you're earning even before you, um, before the lottery comes and you just hold on to your node long enough. And so, but anyhow, we were able to kind of quantify it and put kind of a, a risk value on there, which showed that you, you could go to eight. And I think even the paper, my paper, and then Val had done um, some work afterwards that is, you know, just just as 
as good and, um, you know, came at it from some different approaches and kind of reached the same consensus, you know, it's, it becomes kind of a level of risk appetite, like, well, how much are you willing to risk? And I think mine showed about four ETH. I think Val showed about four ETH somewhere in there. The, the gray starts to turn to black and kind of risk. And, um, you know, Stater had come along. I mean, I, I, I actually don't think they did some original work in there, right? I mean, they claim that they had given it to another company to do and they might have contributed something, but I'm not impressed with what they've put out. But anyhow, they concluded four ETH um, as the same. And so, so somewhere around that that level right now is kind of the area where if the node operator collateral is less than that, you know, there's a higher chance that having one of these uh, stealing strategies um, is going to be profitable in the in a reasonable period of time. Um, yeah. So that's probably the limit right now, unless we can find some way around it. And that's what's uh, uh, kind of been keeping my interest, um, you know, in the recent days here. Okay, so that's a really great transition to something that the protocol is working on called Megapools. So yeah. this got teased a few months ago with, um, you know, the up upcoming upgrades to Rocket Pool, which are Houston and Saturn. At the time, it was just Saturn, but then Houston got kind of added as well, and it kind of got broken into two upgrades. Can you tell us a little bit about what Megapools are and what thinking that you're putting into the whole Megapool space right now and how you're contributing to that? Yeah, yeah. So I, I think I think I think a couple of things will really help um Rocket Pool's growth potential or actually any any um any distributed staking pool that uses a node operator collateral, right, as kind of their um as their permissionless um pathway, right? Okay. Um and so you know they'll like you know, from from companies that don't require a node operator deposit, right? That just use, let's say, a permission set of node operators. They basically have, um, you know, unlimited growth potential, right? The the node operator doesn't have to put any collateral down. Um, they can grow as fast as their deposits grow. But the problem they run with is, well, so what happens if that node operator starts to um, act maliciously, right? Like, like, what are you going to do? And in Rocket Pools, uh, you know, kind of forward forward looking here, I think there's maybe three things that kind of help. One thing's coming real quick. Because first is, you know, there's there's maybe a um, uh, a fault in the existing Ethereum design here, which is that it's got these these two layers, right? The execution layer and the beacon layer, right? And the execution layer doesn't really know what's going on in the beacon layer. And in the next upgrade here, it's going to have a addition to it that will, you know, allow the beacon route to be known in the execution layer. And so all of a sudden now it allows you to, to be able to program in a smart contract something that is triggered based upon the beacon state, right? <laughs> okay, so this, this allows you to um, detect certain things about what the node is doing, okay? Now, um, the, the next problem you have is, is that of kind of MEV theft, right? And in, in, in MEV theft, right, you need this deposit of the node operator, okay? And the fundamental conditions probably don't change, right? Meaning that you probably still need, if you're just a single node operator, you probably need about eight ETH to balance your risk. But what happens when you start to scale that node, right? Instead of just having one validator, what about if it has two validators or five validators or 10 validators, right? Um, in, in the case of a mega pool, right, where they're all kind of grouped together, 
it, it, it could be possible to penalize the entire node deposit for all of those nodes, right? So that way, if they start to steal, you have a larger amount of node operator deposit to kind of counteract or to economically ensure uh, that the node operator, um, you know, doesn't act maliciously, right? Um, it becomes even more powerful once you combine it with something called a forced exit, right? <laughs> so like right now, the way, no the way Rockpool works is only the node operator has the, has the signing keys to that. Um, to that node. Only the node operator can say, I quit or I want to exit out of here, right? Now, if it commits a slashing event, then the protocol will slash it, right? But Rocket Pool doesn't have a way to, to eject that person if they detect that they're doing something malicious. Um, but it could be possible in a, in a couple of ways. I spent some time kind of thinking about, well, I mean, the easiest thing to do probably would be like you could just you know sign an exit message right but you run into problems with that because these exit messages at least right now they expire after after so many upgrades right Ooh, then you run into some problems about well then you've got somebody else that you now have to trust that has your exit message and so is there a way to split it up and it turns out there's there's ways you could do shamir secret sharing and you can split it up and you know but then you would have to prove that everybody share actually you know, when combined back together is a validator. And so I spent a lot of time with um, kind of thinking through that and shared with um, uh, uh, Popus in the, uh, in, in, the, in the community who knows a lot about this, about different techniques we could use to do that. Um, but I'm actually thinking there's a couple of um, EIPs coming forward that actually might give, you know, in, instead of the signing key, the ability to, to exit a node, to actually give the withdraw credential, the ability to exit the node. And if those come through, well, remember our, our, our withdrawal credentials and rocket pool okay. is a smart contract, right? And so now I think, uh, as well as a lot of other people in the community, that you, you could have something like this, where there's a mega pool, you get one smart contract, that is your, your mega pool, you can deposit uh, the node operator Ethereum in there, and the more node operator Ethereum that you put in there, the lower your bonding requirement could be in terms of Ethereum. So maybe if you only deposit um, eight ETH, maybe you just get one mini pool. But if you deposit 16, maybe you get like three mini pools. <laughs> and if you deposit 160 uh, ETH in there, maybe you get something like, you know, 150 mini pools, right? Uh, you know, some way where it doesn't scale linearly, but it scales on some some formula and i spent some time kind of producing a couple of formulas in there that are trying to balance the the risk model with the deposit in there um and then of course if they try to steal if they wait for one lottery block well that deposit is 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 such enough that it's likely to cover a substantial amount of that uh they get you know slashed or penalized for that amount of eth and all their mini pulls are force exited by the protocol and it would be great if uh, it could do it in a in a permissionless standpoint where it's on protocol, right? It doesn't yeah. require the use of an Oracle DAO to do that. Wonderful. I'm really excited to read your research on that, Ken, because I think um, just like before, it'll be one of the like guide guiding lights, you know, for for how uh, Rocket Pool will actually go about implementing mega pools and that's going to be extremely exciting because it's going to shift the dynamics of rocket pools growth completely 
from what they've been like since launch up to now. There'll be like a before Mega Pools and after Mega Pools era for Rocket Pool, and that's how we're going to get to twenty percent of the stake, right? It's going to be it's going to be really amazing. So um, I'm really excited to see what you come up with. Do you can you um, give us any like breadcrumbs about when when some of your work might be uh, featured in writing that we can all <laughs> enjoy? Yeah. It, 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 yeah. Uh, I don't know. It turn it turns out it's it's complicated, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but I was hoping I actually did put in to uh, give maybe a, a a small talk about possibilities uh, for um, Dev Connect that's coming up as part of the Staker thing. So I'll try to produce something there, and I'm hopeful uh, it kind of quiets down a little bit around the uh, the winter break around here. So I'm kind of hoping to produce something there. But I think it's going to be a thing that will probably just outline kind of these possibilities. And you know, I don't think. You know, I'm not the only one to kind of think of these things. I think there's many in the community that have started to explore this and and try to look at it. And certainly, I think you know you can tell from the the teams, um, our PIP proposals are putting out about what's in Houston and what's in Saturn, and that this is this is clearly the direction that that they're thinking, right? That not only mega pulls offer you the efficiency of uh, just having a single contract to to pull from, and it would aggregate all your um, execution layer rewards, right. And your consensus layer rewards that, that go into that mega mega pool, right. So you're going to, you're going to save on gas and transaction costs, right. You don't need this rocket sweep to, <laughs> to go out and clear out all your accounts, but it also would allow them to aggregate your node deposit into this, uh, this, this, you know, this, this, uh, common deposit that allows you, you know, I'd, they don't want to quite say leverage on staking, but it's, it's kind of that you're putting down a larger deposit that could be totally, at risk for any any malicious act on any of your validators. But, you know, once you start depositing and enforcing there, it allows you this kind of exponential curve. Now, there is going to be some upper limit, right? Uh, we saw it, you know, we mentioned the um, the hack in the beginning uh, when Rocket Pool was first launching, right? I think we're always going to have that one ETH minimum deposit to lock in your validator, your execution layer, um, your withdraw, withdraw key, right? Um, you know, and there's probably some some de minimis amount. There's going to be challenges, I think, with the amount of RPL stake. I, I know others in the community have always kind of talked about this, like, well, okay, what, how much, okay, so if we can get the ETH down to these lower levels, these ultra low ETH uh, mini uh, ETH bonded mini pools, what what's going to happen to the RPL? And I think that's a, you know, that's kind of a, a discussion that, you know, could be framed a little bit in some risk modeling, but I think is also up to the community and a tokenomic model about, how much is there? I know others have really started to look at maybe this 10% value, but um, e- even that 10% value, you've got to kind of look at because imagine if you got to one ETH, um, one ETH mini pool, and you're pulling 31 ETH, are we really going to acquire 3.1 ETH of, of RPL? I mean, that seems very excessive. Um, it would probably be a, dis- a, a distraction to have people um, join the protocol. But if you also run it out too, uh, you know, I know we're node operator limited, but as you said, if you run these numbers and you just take the amount of ETH that's deposited in pools, this could give us plenty of growth potential. I mean, um, it'd be an interesting number to run, just take the amount of node operator ETH and one of these nonlinear bonding curves, and we actually might have enough to get us to 22% already, right? We we may not need any more node operators, to be honest, you know. Yeah, that's that's what's so amazing. That's one of the things that I was thinking when you know when we moved from sixteen to eight is that you know that three times our uh, our ETH lift capacity. Then moving from 
8 to 4 would be 7 times, moving it to 2 would be 15 times, moving it to 1 would be 31 times the capacity of our ETH. You know, at that point, we had like, you know, when we were moving from 16 to 8, we had 160, 170,000 our ETH. You multiply that by 31, you've got 6 million our ETH potentially just from yeah. existing node operators, right? Like that is an astronomical amount and that would put you up at Lido's numbers and that is without adding any new node operators and just basically changing the RPL bond depending on what that might or might not become but um, you know it wouldn't be a hundred percent transition to those numbers but um, there'd be a lot to get us quite far without adding any new node operators so there's some really exciting things that, that's why I was saying earlier that you know there'll be when we look back on this, there'll be a time where we think of rocket pool as before mega pools and after mega pools. I think that's how much of a fundamental change is going to be going forward. So it's really exciting to see that. And it's a shame that you know it's, it might take up to a year for it to get here. But um, I know that other things have to happen before we can get mega pools, like you were saying earlier. And those sadly depend on Ethereum core devs and developers outside of our control working on those. So uh, we'll have to wait and see how it all goes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, but no, I you know it's interesting. I mean, I think you're absolutely right in that before megapoles and after megapoles. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, I think it will be defining. And you know, if you if you look at it, the run up we had towards you know Atlas and and that, I think we're going to have a very similar similar run up and excitement and potential on there. Um, you know, and then I then I then I think that uh, you know s- some design like that would certainly make Rocket Pool as competitive as economically efficient as uh you know any other any other staking service that i could think of yeah centralized or decentralized exactly yeah it, it's really great to see that um and i can't wait to see how it's all going to work out so ken another thing that you work on and that you just have finished one year of working on this is the gmc so that's the grants management committee which is part of the rocket pools you know community dow the pdow where um we get a chunk of inflation and we pay that out to protocols, people uh, working. You know, you got elected to the first round of the GMC, and you're also in the running for the second round of the GMC, another year stint. Um, why, what made you want to join the GMC, and how has that experience been for you? Yeah, it's, uh, I would say it's rewarding, and it's also probably the most challenging um, function I've done for Rocket Pool, right? I mean, you know, the joke is governance is hard, and uh you know, and I and I think this was there, right? I mean, I originally thought, okay, like I, you know, I spend time in my in my uh, I call it fiat mining job, you know, doing administration, and thought, okay, it should be pretty easy to set up a grants committee, and we'll create a process for it. But it actually turns out when you when you kind of start with zero and you're working across multiple time zones, you're under some pressure to make these grant cycles. Um, that it actually turns out it's it's pretty hard to kind of create a business process on the fly and work all the kinks out for it. And so I think it's it's been one, certainly I feel um, proud of uh, my contributions as well as all the GMC members. I know, Wack, you, you've been working quite a lot of, a lot of time on there, right? And so it's uh, it was kind of a, a lot of like step and fix and, you know, and, and move forward and then go back and fix whatever whatever broke on there. But I'm you know, I, I I feel much better about where we've ended at the end of our 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 tenure here, where you know there is now I think a an established process that is hopefully much faster. Right, we've got these rolling um, rolling reward windows that people can apply. There's much more communication and interactiveness. So 
maybe a grand comes in and it looks good, but it's not quite tilted or it's not at the quite level. There's a way to provide feedback to the to the the applicant to kind of you know retool it and tilt it a little bit. Um, I think we're starting to see a little bit more process about how to value these things, right? Um, that, uh, you know, things are looking pretty good. I, I still think there's going to be a lot of work in the year ahead for a couple of reasons. One, I think that uh, now that we've got some processes in place, it's actually trying to execute on them and, and keep up the keep up the whole cycle, making certain we're paying the awards and the previous award awardees. We're tracking their progress in terms of just project management. Are they making their endpoints on time and delivering, uh, delivering on schedule? And then... Um, it's the interest is growing now where I think the demand of grants is probably approaching to be greater than the amount of income coming in, right? And trying to still balance a treasury and a and a reserve in the in the GMC. Um, but I'm very glad to see that there was a really a new interested slate of people that want to serve on the GMC. So I think it's very rewarding. But I will say that it is it is a time commitment. Um and just a big shout out to Sheffren, who's the administrator for it, that just keeps track of so many things. Um, there are so many moving balls that I think I would be totally lost in terms of what I need to do next as a member or, or a participant on one of the subcommittees in order to make those deadlines. Great. And um, what uh, would you say to people who are, I know that you know, the elections are already ongoing now, but if you could give one piece of advice to people who you know might be first-time members of the GMC, what would you say to them as they as they're joining? Um, I I, I would I would say first welcome. <laughs> uh, your their contributions are are very much needed and and welcome on there. I would say it's not a perfect solution, so we are looking for continuous improvement uh, on the thing. And I also think it's going to be very rewarding. So plan to do some hard work, roll up, roll up your sleeves, but um, you're going to learn a lot about Rocket Pool. You're going to learn about the community. Um, you'll be forced to interact with some folks and try to figure out how some of these innovative grants might benefit Rocket Pool and how they may not. So it's going to be intellectually challenging, um, but it is, it is work. So thank you for your service in advance. Were there any grants that you know you uh, worked with approving that you were either like really happy the way that you know it worked out, or you're really excited to see what's going to come out of those grants? Like, do any of them stick out to you? Um, yeah, it's, it's certainly some of the retroactive ones I thought were really good to kind of award and value, right? Um, and you know, trying to get the 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 correct amount of remuneration on there, I think, was always challenging, right? Sometimes maybe we're a little more fiscally conservative, not quite knowing where it is. Um, I think there. I think I'm very interested in a lot that are are coming forward just by so many, um, not only so many people in the community that are contributing, but just people outside of the community that have a service or product or have some solution that we didn't even know about that are coming forward and saying, "Look what we can, look what we can partner with or do with with Rocket Pool." So I do think it. I do think it's 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 very positive looking forward, but it's also kind of neat to just see some of the uh, the content that was created. Obviously, as you know, from many of the folks within the community that that got rewarded. So I think I'm, I'm was most excited about some of those retro payments. Yeah, wonderful. So Ken, um, a little while ago, you said that you know you haven't really sold any of your crypto, and you've gone going through like your 
three cycles, basically the first one, and then in 2017, and then in, again in 2021, uh, and that you might sell going to the next cycle. What are your plans for like the, the next part of your life now? You said that, you know, you might be transitioning out of your fiat mining job. What What's next for Ken? Yeah, yeah. Well, certainly I, you know, Ethereum has become more than a passion, right? I think it's, it's, you know, it's a hobby that I think is, I very much would like to form into a second career, right? And, and at some point, um, I think it makes sense to retire out of my existing job. Um, and I very much, you know, would, I think, really enjoy a second career in uh, blockchain technology. And, you know, so I formed I formed a company. I've always been a little bit of an entrepreneur, but I formed a company called Next Block Solutions. And it's still kind of searching, I think, in terms of, of what it's doing, right? I, I toyed with the ideal of doing like Ethereum research or helping other protocols do some of this um you know, risk analysis or, or, or reporting on there. Um, I toyed a little bit with uh, building some hardware and, uh, you know, making that as as nodes is maybe like a cheaper alternative to DAP node or some of the other um, providers that are out there. Um, but to be honest, the, the thing I think it will probably end up being and the thing I, I, I can see being needed is that I, I do firmly believe that more and more um, just web 2.0 companies, um, tech companies, just even commercial companies will start to use blockchain almost like they use a database, right? Um, it will just become second nature. If they take credit card processing, they'll at some point take cryptocurrency transactions. If they do something in finance or, uh, you know, asset tracking or, or uh, supply chain tracking or something like that, they're going to find a business case for this, you know, special database known as a blockchain, right? And I, I believe Ethereum is uniquely positioned to be that, right? With its, its layer twos and the growth potential, the amount of building that's on there. But if you're just coming into the industry, it's a crazy industry to explain, right? It kind of reminds me of like uh, literally the the internet of the 1990s, right? Like, no, it's a computer, but you can go do this and you can shop online. And I mean, all these things that were so foreign at the time, right? I was kind of the guy in the neighborhood running around to the neighbors and, and friends trying to explain this and fix their computer each each evening, right? As they broke it, right? <laughs> um, now we take it for granted, right? I mean, kids these days, they just grow up in this thing and it seems no different to them, right? But I really think, that uh, probably what I'll end up doing is uh, providing some educational or training services for companies, you know, the, whether it be the sales team or the business team or somebody that needs an introduction into this space, but they want a, uh, a, they want the format kind of presented to them in a in a learning environment. Like let's let's go to a one week deep dive course to get us to get us through the basics of blockchain technology. That's great. Uh, so, Ken, what are you? Um... What are you looking forward to with Rocket Pool, with crypto? Um, what what do you think uh, things will look like in a year, two years, five years time? Do you have any ideas? You know, I I, I certainly think that it's going to be much more adoption, right? I think that right now, if you look at, you know, most people's experience on crypto is maybe they bought it in their app, right? They they bought it on Venmo or maybe in their uh you know, PayPal, I think it allows you to buy it, right? But they just, they buy it and they hold it to them. It's like no different than a stock or something like that. They're not really using it for its intended purpose. And I and I do hope we're going to start to see some use cases for it, right? Uh, uh, so many times I've, I've thought about just real world business cases that blockchain can fix. And you get kind of frustrated that like, you know, the technology exists out there. Why, why aren't we seeing that? So I really hope 
that the decade ahead, it becomes more mainstream. It actually gets use cases that are used in, in business. Maybe they don't even know they're using using a blockchain or some protocol on it. Um, I, you know, I, I really do think that's probably going to be the, the, the continued growth of it. It's like, um, you know, if it, if it follows the trajectory of the internet, right. It's like, you know, most people don't just use the internet because it's the internet. It's they're, they're using it because it does something. And, and that's what we need. We need to get it to. Wonderful. Ken, is there anything that, um, you wanted to talk about that we missed in our conversation today, or do you think we got everything covered that you wanted to talk about? You know, I think I think we covered it quite a bit. I mean, I will say that the, you know, one one I think just wonderful benefit of Rocket Pole is just the community of folks that that comprise it, right? I mean, certainly, uh, you know, my highlights is not only uh, hanging out in the Discord, but I get the uh, I get the occasion to go to a couple of conferences, right? Uh, a few times I've been able to to represent uh, the team as being a rocket scientist and speak on the protocol. Other times I've just attended. Um, as a participant in there, but I think it's just a, it's a wonderful community to be in uh, Ethereum and it's even a, a, another wonderful community to be in Rocket Pool. So if you have a chance to run into me at one of the conferences or in-person events, please, uh, please introduce yourself. I'd, I'd love to meet you. I've learned so much from um, my other friends and colleagues in the Rocket Pool community. I'd love to learn something from anyone else. Wonderful, Ken. Thank you so much for joining us on Rocket Fuel's Launchpad. And it's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you. And I can't wait to see you at ETH Denver in 2024. It's going to be yeah. wonderful. Yeah. Thanks, yeah, Ken. Same, same here, Wack. Bye.